0: Well, we've been going through a uh, 2020 vision in Daniel, and uh, when we started this, I had no idea how accurate some of these and, and how uh, poignant some of these lessons were going to be to the things that would take place this year. We're in Daniel 11, we're almost done. Uh, last year, we went through 16, or last week, excuse me, we went through 16 verses that covered about 450 years, uh, so... If I tell you that between this week and next week we're we're going to do twenty two years, you think, wow, I'm not going to cover that many verses. But uh, as Daniel goes, he gets more and more specific. Um, we're going to be looking at about fifteen verses or so, just under, and we're going to be covering about most of that twenty two years just today. Uh, next year we get about, or next week we get about four four years uh, in about fifteen verses. We talked about, and I just want to kind of recap what we did. Uh, and I know for those of you who just love history uh, we 'll just do this really briefly. Uh, we talked about Antiochus the uh, third this this Antiochus the great coming to the beautiful land coming and we saw how things started way out here, and how the the Jewish people thought that things would never get really close to them, and how as time went on, everything gets gets close to god 's people, which is why God gave the vision, and uh, that never ever thought it would touch them. We have the ability to avoid, uh, we have that wonderful ability as human beings to rationalize and think that that things will never touch me. And and part of it, I think, is just because, you know, those people are those people, those conspiracy theorists, and we don't want to, you know, conspiracy theorists, we don't want to be one of them. I'm old enough to remember when Bill Gates wanted to give all his money away if you would share something on Facebook. Do you remember that? Remember that? Now he wants to kill your children. I don't know what's happened to Bill Gates in the last 10 years. But uh, right, those, you know, conspiracy theorists. So we, we try to avoid those people. So we're going to go to Daniel chapter 11. And we're going to see how close it gets uh, to God's people. just starting in this. In this passage, and then definitely uh, as we finish out Daniel chapter 11 next week, and it begins in verse 17. We're going through verse 28. It says, and "Now this picks up, still talking about Antiochus the third, this this conqueror. It says he will set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom." And, his upright one, and the upright ones with him. Talking about the Jewish people. So he's going down south again. This whole thing has been between Syria and Egypt. That's all these fighting. And, and it's, it's pertinent to us because that's where the Jews lived right in the sandwiched in between these two. So he says, and so he will do. He'll give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she will not stand with him or before him. And after this he will turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. But a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed... He shall turn back on him, and he shall turn his face towards the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and not be found. And there shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he will be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. In his place place shall rise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but they shall come in peaceably. He will seize the kingdom by intrigue, and with the force of a flood they will be swept away before him and broken, as well as the prince of the covenant." And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people, and he will enter peaceably into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them and plunder and spoil and riches, and he'll devise his plans against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his power and courage against the kingdom of the south, a great army, and a king of the south will be stirred up into battle with the very great... And mighty armies well, but he will not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat the portions of his delicacies will destroy him. His armies shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both of these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table. But it won't prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. And while returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant. So he shall do damage and return to his own land. Wow. And just to, to recap, these are detailed predictions of, of how an, various administrations would go, and we're going to start looking and, and, and seeing exactly how this unfolds. And of course, we're going to make some application for things that have happened thousands of years later, our own lives, and see, really, people aren't that much changed. Oh, the, the technology changes, and, and, and how our goals and everything, really, it's about the same. Things operate the same. So let's talk about the decline of the, the Greek Empire here under Antiochus III. We ended in 198 BC, if you call, recall, uh, with all this string of successes where he expanded his, his empire out to where it had been uh, earlier. And we remembered that, that the, the Jewish people saw that this guy was up and coming, and, and so they wanted to be away from Egypt and out from under it, and so they aligned themselves with him. Align yourself with the one that seems to be the most dominant power will probably help you out the most. Now we need to stop. And one of the things that's really interesting about history is when you study Bible history, you, you pull into all, all the things that you studied in, in, in high school or in college and didn't know that they had connection to the Bible. Well, while the Bible's talking about this Antiochus the third guy doing all this, this king of the north, this king of Syria, Rome is up and coming. Now they're not the world power yet, but they're they're a, a thing to be reckoned with. They've been losing some battles to a guy by the name of Hannibal all this time. You know that guy's name, right? Uh, well, Hannibal had had a bad turn of, of uh, events, and so he flees. And who does he turn to for for uh, hope? Now, he was Hannibal was the the general for Carthage. Carthage is what we would call Libya today. He runs and is uh, protected by Antiochus the Third. Rome is not quite. Strong enough to reach that far. And so this pulls in. Wow, I didn't know that, that uh, Hannibal had connections to the Bible. Yes, he does. Um, and so a lot of things have a connection. In 195 B.C. He's, is when he fled. So this is just a few years later. And Antiochus thinks he's so great. Now he's, he's got even a great general. And he's looking at Rome eventually. And um, he arrives at a plan because he's not strong enough right yet. He's, he's taken a lot of land back, but he's got to arrive at a plan. And that's described here. It says he will give him the daughter of women. He's talking about the, the, uh, the king of the south here of, of Egypt. So he does kind of what we had talked about way long long ago that Egypt had tried uh, with not much success. This guy's going to try it also with not much, much success. He gives his daughter uh, in, in marriage for a treaty. This lady's name is Cleopatra. Not the Cleopatra that was dating two-thirds of the Roman triumvirate, uh, but uh, this is the, the great, great something or other grandmother of that lady. This is Cleopatra 1. And so he gives her. But it, it says, but she's not going to stand with him, and, and she's not going to be for him. In other words, she didn't really care what dad thought. She got down to Egypt and said, I kind of like this guy. And, and so she's like, I, I, I don't mind Egypt. I, maybe it wasn't a big desert back then. I don't know. But, but she kind of liked it. And so she's like, I'm going to, I'm sorry, dad, you're on your own. So he gets mad uh and And now, what to do? he can 't quite attack Rome yet, and so it says he 's going to turn his face to the coastlands and so what he does is is uh, he's kind of wants to conquer, but he can 't attack Rome and what are we going to do? He attacks a bunch of islands he 's going to beat up on a bunch of islands um, off of the coast of Turkey. Now, Turkey was owned by Syria at the time, but it 's kind of getting close to Greece and Greece is kind of the the Greece and Macedonia are kind of declining a little bit, and Rome is kind of getting that. over towards Turkey. And so what what happens is that uh, he's beating up on these islands and he comes to an island by the name of Rhodes. Rhodes is actually mentioned in the Bible. Uh, And and at one point in time, I don't know if if it was still standing, but there was one of the seven wonders of the world. There was a Colossus there. I think it had fallen by this time. But uh, Rhodes didn't like it. Now they sent a message to, to Greece, or to, excuse me, to Rome. They said, uh, this Antiochus III guy is, is here. Can you send us some help? So they sent a message, basically a cease and desist order. And, uh, and, Antiochus III, this, this passage talks about, uh, reproach. He was very insulting. He said, he sent a message back to Rome. He said, uh, you have as much right to ask me why I'm in Rhodes as I have, uh, I have to ask Italy why there's Romans there. Right. You keep your, you just keep your nose up. This is my area. I'll, I'll conquer. Well, they sent a guy by the name of Scipio. He's just a general. I would call him a prince here, a ruler of some sort, but uh, mostly a general. And he was a Teddy Roosevelt kind of guy. He was carry a big stick, uh, speak softly. So he didn't. He just. Uh, he wielded that stick and beat Antiochus the Third about the head, neck, and shoulders. And uh, he turned the reproach back on him when uh, when they beat them at Rhodes. He he didn't just defeat Antiochus the Third. He said, "Okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to leave all your stuff here, and you're going to basically hitchhike back to Syria with nothing. But not just that. You're going to." Um, pay us for having to come over here and do this. So, so you're going to pay for the, the war reparations, and then you're going to pay us taxes every year after this for like a couple of decades. And then just to make sure you you do everything we told you, I'm going to take your son, Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, who we're going to talk about, we're going to take him and put him in prison in Rome. Now you're wondering, because we've talked about a, a few chapters ago how Antiochus IV Epiphanes gets to become the the ruler of Syria, When he's in prison, how is that going to happen? Well, we're going to get there. But first, we have to uh, close the loop here on this guy. So he goes back to his town. It says he will turn his face towards the fortresses of his own land, but he's going to stumble and fall and not be found. And here's what happened. He had no no place to conquer. He has no authority. I mean, he has his own land, but he has no leverage. All the leverage belongs with Rome. And now he owes money to them. So uh, here's a word to the wise. Whenever someone says the rich should pay their fair share, when those rich people make the rules, they never pay their fair share. That's just a fact of life. They raid temples or raise taxes, and that's what we see here. Uh, that's just always the way it's been. Somebody else pays their fair share. And so it was. He went and uh, He went to Persia. He went to uh, a temple, there was a temple to Bel. Now, Bel in Persia, what we call Iran, Bel was kind of their big deal. He was like their Zeus. And he raids a temple. Now, he didn't even have other people do it for him. This, this guy was not maybe altogether there. But he goes into the temple himself, and he's raiding it, and the local townspeople got together a group and overpowered it, go in and kill him. And that's what it says. He's going to turn towards the fortresses of his own land. Is raiding them, and he will stumble and fall not be found. The next guy is his son, Seleucus IV. He gets one verse. That's how important he is. In his place will arise one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he'll be destroyed. There we go. Seleucus IV raised taxes. Uh, when, I start, when I do the research, I look at a lot of sources, but I start with a general thing. I go to Wikipedia. That's the first place I go. I don't end there. You know what Wikipedia says about Seleucus IV? He raised taxes. That's what it says about it. That's that's all he did. Um, So so he's not so much. He is responsible probably for all the suffering of the Jews, however. Uh, Not not personally, just because he's incompetent. Uh, We get into this next passage about how in that guy's place arises a very vile person. And that very vile person is going to be the subject for the rest of this chapter. Antiochus IV. Who's in jail? And uh, this guy, Antiochus IV, it says that he becomes king through intrigue. In other words, something mysterious. And, and this guy is going to be a guy who makes treaties and, and tries to do all these things. And that's how he operates. And I don't know exactly how he did it. It's intriguing. There's a lot of mystery behind it. But this guy gets out of jail. And here's how he gets out of jail Somehow. And Seleucus IV sends his own son. He has two, an infant and, a, and kind of a, a preteen, teenager, kind of an age kid. And he sends him in place of Antiochus IV. So Antiochus IV gets out of jail. And his own son, the heir to the throne, is now in jail in Rome. At the same time he's getting out of jail, a general or a, or a guy in the administration poisons Seleucus the fourth. He doesn't die in battle because he didn't start any. He doesn't even die like dad in a coup stirring up a bunch of anger. He just kind of, he's poisoned and that's that. When when the Bible predicts these things, it's like so detailed. 400 years before it happens, all the details, and God says, this is how it's going to happen exactly. And it does. So he kind of works his way back. Antiochus the fourth does, and now he's on the throne. He's just kind of a temporary uh, regent because there's this other heir to the throne now the, that guy's in prison but it says that he will put down all of them with a, with a flood he puts them away he leaves this one in jail he kills the infant and then he kills the the guy who had tried to take the throne by poisoning his, his brother so now he's officially on the throne well <clears throat> that's a uh, Brings us to this one reference that talks about the... He will also put down the the, the prince of the covenant. Some people think this is talking about the, the old covenant, but this is talking about a different covenant because this guy worked in covenants. His whole his whole family worked in, in making bad deals. If we were to compare a guy uh, to this guy, we would maybe compare Adolf Hitler to this guy. Remember the whole green light to war where here, just give us this, uh, just give us this, and just give us this, and, and we'll th- oh, yes, you can have this, and you can have this, and you can have this. And that's how this guy worked. Antiochus would, uh, the Fourth would make a deal and break it. He, he didn't have any care about breaking uh, his, his agreements, and that's how he probably got on the throne, whatever deal he made with his brother. Well, the prince of the covenant was... This guy who 's now down as king in the south, is the son of Cleopatra. From this point on there 's a bloodline between the South and the north. That son of Cleopatra is now this guy 's nephew. So he gets down there and uh, he makes a deal with them. ah you 're my nephew right now, i won 't do anything now. And that's what, so this starts this whole process. Now he's on the throne. I make a deal, but he's gonna break it. So he starts peacefully. It says he starts peacefully, just, and he's gonna end up doing what his ancestors never did. Boy, this guy is full of pride, and he is a vile person. He breaks his treaties and, and everything else, but he's, he starts raiding little places around Egypt. And he goes in with a small group of people because this guy wasn't expecting it. He actually goes into a stronghold, which has never happened before. He enters the stronghold of Memphis. It's a fortress. And Memphis, Egypt. And he conquers it. And then he heads back with a ton of riches. And he throws parades. It says that he divides the spoils and the plunder among, among these people. And he would have, he had these parades that made like, would make Soviet uh, dictators jealous. I mean, he throws a military parade like nobody else, and and he it would be elephants and horses. I mean, they're military vehicles of the day, and and then he had women that would would walk on the side of these parades and just spray the crowds with perfume. So the the, the ladies would like to get to the front to get the free perfume, and then and then this guy himself would walk in front of the of the parade with with just. You know, all these coins, and someone would be carrying these coins, and he'd throw the coins into the crowd just to see people fighting over the coins. He was a vile person. And he'd distribute, and then whenever, whenever he ran out of money for these things, he'd go and raid somewhere else. And so he goes back and says that he's going to go back down. He musters this great force and goes down again. But this time, the king of Egypt is going to stir a great army up. Well, that happened at a place called Pelusia, in, uh, in Pelusia, it, there was two great armies, but only one of them won. But it says that he was going to be destroyed by basically by bad advice. They says that they're going to devise plans against him. In other words, the king of the south, as the bat, he's a young guy. He took over the throne when he was sixteen. His dad died, and he had two. Uh, he had two advisors, a guy by the name of uh, Euleius and Linnaeus. They's, they were either just horrible advisors, or they were deliberately horrible. It's not known which. But they told him, as the battle is turning, they said, you should run away, then come back later. Now, it's possible that they were trying to get the throne for themselves uh, and, and told Syria where he was. But one way or the other, this guy gets captured by his uncle. And they sit down at a table to make plans. It says that they sat down and spoke lies together. And that's exactly what happened. Now, they had different motives. As he's captured, uh, Ptolemy VI's brother is taking over the throne. So he wants to get there and put it back. So he's willing to listen. At the same time, Antiochus IV wants a puppet. This guy is not quite so militaristic as his younger brother. So they're dealing deceit at the table. And I want to close the loop here again because it says that that he's going to go back and as he goes back he's going to uh, be against the Holy Covenant. Against the Jewish people because as he leaves, as Antiochus IV leaves uh, Egypt, they've spoken lies at the same table and what ends up happening is, is the two brothers in Egypt end up making up and... Uh, the IV ends up with nothing, really. I mean, he has the two strongholds. He never gets Alexander, He never gets what he wants. And the Bible says, that, so he attacks. He just vents his frustration. This is the first time that he vents his frustration on the temple and steals a whole bunch of stuff from the temple. Kills people. Mostly, this is not as violent a one as will come later. Mostly just stealing stuff. But it says an end is determined. And this is important. An end is determined. Oh, Antiochus is having mostly success, a little setback here and there. And he has no idea that he only has about five years left to live. God says, an end is determined. We talked about how the Jews thought that they could you know, speed up things. They tried to speed up the vision. And God says, no, it's it's for this long and then this is going to happen. And they try to speed it up and it didn't, it didn't work. Well, you can't slow things down either. You can't speed it up and you can't slow it down when God says, this is how long it's going to be. And he looked at, it was going to be so productive. I'm going to be, accomplish what my my dad never did. We talked about self-deception and that's where I want to look at. We're talking about reality and we have this Ability not to look at reality. Self-deception is, is such a, a strong part of us. And the self-deception is obvious in this chapter from from multiple sources. Uh, whether it be people convincing themselves that, that this guy is going to do what he, what he wants or, or the Jews convincing themselves that, that they're going to go along with somebody and, and, and it's all going to work out for them in the end, which it never does. And we talked about those, those uh, aligning with secular ideas to try to accomplish spiritual things. I don't want to re-preach last week. How many agreements did Europe agree to? Convincing themselves that this one would be the one. Hey, Antiochus just signed a treaty. We're good. The world offers us a temporary ceasefire. It does. It says, listen, church... Just give us this ground, and we 'll leave you alone. Just just don 't just when you 're in the workplace, just keep it to yourself that 's all we want. This is our area this is our, just give us this when you're when you 're in college or when you 're in the high school wherever you 're at just just keep it to yourself. just give us this. you keep it in your church building and we 'll be okay and and little by little, we let the the, the world kind of Put us into this area. And, and we see what Antio- was interesting is, is that Antiochus did that for as long as he needed until he had Egypt in a corner. And then he didn't feel the need to make treaties anymore. He just brought an attack right out in the open when he felt he had the position. And that's what happens if you're paying attention to the news. The church has been pushed into for decades into the church building. And we, we, okay, we'll give up this ground. We'll give up this ground. We'll, we'll just do this. We'll, we'll, and, and the world will leave me alone. And now they're looting churches, and they're burning churches because they feel emboldened. Because this is where we're at. It's pretty easy to find us. This is the only place where we make a noise. And so they don't feel the need to make treaties anymore. They've just made the treaties to get us in one little spot. That's the self-deception. We arm ourselves with inferior weapons. As we said, we arm ourselves with secular ideas, whether it be politics or social justice or whatever those things are. We, We feel that those are spiritual, but it goes beyond that. We're all looking for the time when life goes back to normal. Aren't you looking time forward to that time when life goes back to normal? What's normal? Well, when I get an education, uh, when I get a good job, when I get a nice house, when I can afford a nice car, uh, when I can do, go to a nice sports game with, with no social distancing hopefully, uh, when I can... Uh, whatever I want to do and the things that I call life that bring me fulfillment and meaning then I retire and oh yeah through the whole thing I'll go to church. That's life as normal. And then I die. Those are inferior weapons. They don't bring meaning to your life. I'm not saying don't get an education. I'm saying it won't bring meaning to your life. not saying don't have a good job. I'm saying a good job won't give you fulfillment in life. Those things are the side issue. And faith, my Christianity, is the main issue. My faith is not a, oh yeah, by the way, I'll do this. There will be no fulfillment if I arm myself with an inferior weapon. That is self-deception. And I do it to avoid a necessary action. I want to talk about a place called Birkenau. You know where Birkenau is? Some of you know where Birkenau is. It's a city. It's been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. But in the late 30s, someone decided to build a military installment right near it. That's really, at least what they told the townspeople. It was a concentration camp called Auschwitz. And the townspeople... A lot of people look at the townspeople like victims like anybody else, and maybe to a certain degree they are. We don't know what's going. There's a, a row of trees around it and fences, and who knows what's going on inside there. And so they just pretended nothing. It's just a military camp, it's just a factory, it's just a whatever they tell us. But when you listen or read about the numbers of bodies that were burned on a daily basis, thousands. So many so that they had to do what's called an open air. They couldn't even use the incinerators. They had to do open air burnings. Thousands. I used to work for a uh, fire and water damage restoration company. And after a fire, we would have to go in like three days later after the power's been cut and clean stuff out. The smell of a single refrigerator with meat in it Cleaning one single refrigerator with you know forty pounds of meat defrosted. You can't hold anything down to smell that. The smell of thousands of humans. What happened in Birkenau? They lied to themselves. They pretended nothing was going on because they didn't want to deal with it. Because we have this feeling of self preservation. If I admit that something's happening, then I've got to deal with it. I've got to do something. There's a, there's a impetus upon me. But deception goes more than that. And I want to talk about one more deception very quickly and then we'll be done. There's these two guys meeting at this table, lying to one another. And we have to understand what this meant to lie at a table. A table back then just wasn't a place to eat. It was a it was a hospitality, extended hospitality. we're going to have a picnic this afternoon, some of us are going to a picnic, and, and we've been wanting to do this for some time, right? Some things as normal and things we haven't been able to do in fellowship and unity, and it is more than simply eating sandwiches in a park, isn't it? It means more, but in a table meant like that to, to this. Time in this culture, when when someone offered you table, especially business done over the table, had a a trust and it had a confidence. And here is not just one but two people at the same table of hospitality lying through their teeth to one another. It was, it's offensive. They were vile people, as the Bible describes them. Every week we come to the greatest table of hospitality ever offered to man. We partake of a covenant. The Bible says that we proclaim the terms of that covenant. We proclaim that allegiance to that table every time we do it. But there are terms to that covenant how often do we come to this table and speak lies? How often does God say, this is the terms of my covenant? And when we say, yes, I affirm. By my taking of communion, I affirm this covenant. And we walk out there and either do practice what we're not supposed to or we don't practice what we are supposed to. Now, grace is there because we mess up. But how often do we walk out the door knowing that we're going to? That's speaking lies at the table. Do not speak lies at this table. The Bible says God is not mocked. Do not deceive yourself. God is not mocked. God knows what's in my head. Don't speak lies at this table. That is the greatest deception. We're going to conclude with that thought. That as you go out there, Respect the terms of this covenant. This covenant requires that that I live a holy life. And God says, I require, I require that this be something that is an open part of your life. Not something where we're sequestered here and pretend that we're the only ones and and it's a secret. But it is there to be public. I am there to be a public display. That is one of the terms of this covenant. Do not speak lies at this covenant at this table.